Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 57th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. I am uh, calling in here remotely for the podcast today. Yeah, yeah. We're doing this via Zoom. We haven't done this in a while. So um, hopefully the audio is okay for everybody. I'm in the office on our normal mics, but uh, we apologize for any technical difficulties in advance. Um, so as always, we'll just take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on August 4th, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 1.08% to start the month of August and up 2.45% for the year. The Dow up 1.51% for August and down 5.83% for the year. The NASDAQ up 1.82% to start the month and up 21.94% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 2.33% for the month and down 8.98% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States up 2.23% for the month and down 6% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.09%, the two-year treasury yield sitting at 0.11%, and the 10-year treasury sitting at a low 0.54%. Um so Matt, Q2 earnings season continues to roll along, and I think that there's a general consensus that most have uh, beat surprisingly in general, and a lot of that has to do with big cap tech uh, outperforming, I think, right? Absolutely, and what's interesting is as you went over those year-to-date numbers, Mark, the S&P year-to-date plus 2.45 really doesn't... Uh, share and tell the whole picture of how this year's gone, right? I mean, it seems that, okay, it's up 2.45, but man, it's been a roller coaster for investors. Yeah, it has. And, you know, whenever, and this is the problem with looking back at history, right? You look back and you see the historical return numbers for the market, but you just see the numbers. You don't see anything in between or what happened throughout the year, right? So, you know, right. as, much, as much crap as everyone went through, you know, in February and March, that's really not going to be reflected in the return numbers unless we get a huge move to the downside to end the year. Um, but it's just interesting because, you know, that's usually when time passes, it's never really talked about. Everyone only talks about the return numbers and no one talks about the, the volatility or what happened in those 12 months. Yeah. In essence, the pain that you had to endure emotionally to earn that, <laughs> that return. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, July jobs numbers coming out on Friday, Matt. Is that correct? Uh, next, next Friday. Fr next Friday. Oh, I'm sorry. This Friday. This Friday. Yeah. This Friday. Man, the calendar's moving quick. So we had initial, um, I'm sorry, we had ADP uh, estimate uh, for uh, July just this morning at 830, Mark. And uh, I know the number was definitely a lot less than what 
analysts were expecting. And then last night during a press conference, uh, President Trump, I guess, hinted at a big number for uh, jobs in July. Obviously, he's privy to that information before they release it on Friday. So I think the expectations are going to be high based upon his comment last night. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Um, Last thing before we move on to tweets, articles, and research is an update briefly on the congressional legislation. We know we're going to get another stimulus bill, Matt, but we just really don't know the meat of it right now. Um, It's still getting debated in Congress and, you know, they're trying to get something done, I believe, before their August recess. Um, But there is definitely going to be a bill. Again, a lot of the things are still being debated. So I don't think it makes much sense for us to go too much into detail on that. I absolutely concur. You know, um, I I wish that they made a deal last week. You know, they're they're playing the politics games on both sides of the aisle. I just hope that they can uh, come to an agreement uh, sooner rather than later to provide those in need some clarity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I'll turn it over to you to talk about tweets, articles, and research that caught your eye the past week. Thank you, Mark. All right, listeners, I think you're going to enjoy uh, what I uh, put together for uh, us to discuss this week. The first is an update on U.S. national debt as a percentage of nominal GDP. So, listeners, the reason I'm bringing this up this week is a lot of people will say, hey, Matt, the government's printing all this money. Uh, How much longer can they do this before uh, we have major issues? Uh, whether that be inflation or our inability to raise money by issuing bonds. So one way that I like to, to uh, analyze that question is to compare a country's debt level to their annual uh, gross domestic product or GDP. And, and can you just talk about real quick, Matt, what, you know, what is gross domestic product and why is that important? Absolutely. So it is a way to uh, look at a country and look at the economic output that that country has. Okay. And so that needs to be analyzed because your ability, say, to tax that, right? Because how does the government work? It's funded via taxes. How is it funded via taxes? It comes out of a percentage of your economic output, right? And so we've been staying right around 100% of debt to annual gross domestic product. And a lot of the European countries before COVID were in the mid 150% debt to GDP range, just to kind of give you a feel. And the worst uh, of the developed nations, and I've I've quoted this before on the podcast, Mark, as you know, is Japan. And they're around the 220, 230% of their debt to their annual, in essence, economic output. So with COVID now, and a lot of the spending that's occurred, especially with the CARES Act bill, as you know, Mark, we went from 103% of debt to GDP. And this chart by Charlie Abelio of Compound, uh, it's a research firm, and it's from July 31st, shows us at 136%. So again, we went from 103% debt to GDP here in the US, Mark, to 136%. And I would assume with this additional congressional bill that's pending, we'll probably get closer to that 150% to debt to GDP, which will put us to European debt to GDP levels pre-COVID. Anything you want to comment on there, my friend? No, I think that, 
you know, people can get caught up in the weeds on this stuff. And, you know, you look back in, you know, uh, 81, January of 81 until January of 93, it went from 31% to 65%, you know, essentially a little more than doubling. Um, I don't know. I just don't know, you know, the correlation with this and how it helps, you know, in terms of investing. Um, I think it's an interesting stat because I think we, we really can, there is no limit to how much, you know, money we can print. Um, and I that's, think, that's the angle I'm, I'm headed towards is I yeah. think people think, well, we can't do this much longer. And it's like, well, when you I think we can do, a, do it a lot longer. You yeah. can do it a lot longer. And that's the message I want to send with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think the message here is that never say never, right? Well, the U S government can't print that much money or they can't issue that much debt or, you know, back in the day when, you know, oil couldn't go negative and it did. So that's just one of these examples to, to never say never. I think we can, honestly, they can issue a lot more debt and print a lot more money and we would still be in an okay environment. So I, I agree. Now I'm going to start making a transition more towards, uh, say, the economy and investments here in a second. Next is a uh, GDP update uh, for the second quarter. Okay. Uh, same source, uh, second quarter GDP um, was down 9.5% over the prior year. That's the largest decline on record. And to go back, uh, this data he had went back to the late 40s, Mark the worst year-over-year decline for a single quarter in previous recessions was negative 2.9% in 57 and 58. To give you 08 and 09 recent, that was the worst, negative 3.9. 01 to 02 tech bubble was actually, the worst was a positive 0.2%. So we were down negative 9.5. So a big, big um, black eye in the data. Now, the uh, next piece looking at GDP is from Argus on July 30th. Uh, the U.S. economy contracted an astonishing 32.1% uh, in the first quarter alone, not comparing it year over year, as the nation shut down to combat the coronavirus. And again, this, I'm quoting Argus here, Mark. Here are some of the stark numbers. Personal consumption expenditures plummeted 35% led by a 44% drop in spending on services as the country sheltered in place. Private domestic investment fell 49%, including a 38% plunge in equipment as the oil and gas industry suffered. Exports were down 64%. The positives, Argus says, very few. Consumer spending on durable goods declined only 1.4%, and investment into intellectual property products only fell 72 no surprise here, Mark. Federal government spending surged 17%, including a 40% increase in non-defense spending, reflecting that $2.3 trillion congressional uh, CARES Act program. A 53% decline in imports also supported uh, uh, GDP. This is likely hopeful the worst quarter as most of the country was shut down for several weeks. That said, some states have reopened parts of their economies um, or, or had the chance to close down again if cases surge. There will be a come back and it might start as early as next quarter. But Argus finally says, but we expect GDP to be impacted by the pandemic well into 2021. Okay. So again, we've been talking about this, the comparison numbers going forward are going to look pretty good because the data has been so nasty in the second quarter, right? 
Um, yeah, definitely. I got uh, two more. Uh, next is a statistic update from BTN Research on July 27th. Uh, the S&P 500 index during the 25 years ending June 30th, um, if you were uh, in that, you achieved a positive total return 66% of the time. If you extend your investment time horizon to just one year, you achieved a positive return 80% of the time. If your time horizon goes up to five years mark, you achieved a positive rate of return 80% of the time. So again, I like to share this statistic because as we started off the podcast and I pointed out, hey, S&P's up 2.45% this year, doesn't tell the whole story. When you kind of look at these stats and people obviously have realistic timelines for being quote unquote in stocks, the longer you move that needle with your time horizon, obviously the probability of success goes up. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, it's just, I think it's just one of those things, you know, pull up a chart of the S&P 500 going back to the 1940s. And over time, if you have a long enough time horizon, the stock market is a wealth generating machine. And I know we've mentioned that on the podcast before, but you know, it's tough for people, especially right now, because they can't look past the next day or the next week. But again, we have to constantly remind everybody that, hey, this is a long-term game. We're not just in it for the next week or the next month or even the next year. You know, people that are just starting, I think, are very fortunate right now to have such a long runway until they retire that we just have to understand and keep throwing it out there that, you know, hey, over time, the stock market historically has been really, really good in giving people a return on their investment. And just with low interest rates right now, there's really no else for you to put this money. Um, you know, I guess there are, but I, you know, we can get into the weeds on that, but I'm just talking about typical assets, stocks and bonds. You know, I don't see any other way to achieve, you know, increased returns on your money by parking your money in cash or, you know, investing into bonds right now. So I think this yeah, is a good in this interest rate environment. Yeah. So I think this is a good reminder for people that, you know, over the long term, if you just stick to your plan, you know, this will benefit you down the road. Yeah. And as a reminder for listeners, there's no way to invest directly in the S&P 500 index. There are products that will track it. Um, but just want to kind of throw that out there as well. Um, I got one more stat, uh, Mark, I thought was pretty interesting. So uh, for those of you uh, that know me on a personal level, um, a lot of my family is in the aviation industry. So it is something I, I pay uh, closer attention to per se. Um, the CARES Act uh, at the end of March allocated Mark $25 billion um, into 11 U.S. airlines to be used as part of a payroll and benefits package to kind of bail them out. Now, here's the key point I want to throw out there to you, sir. This legislation prohibits the 11 airlines that receive the money from implementing any layoffs until October 1st of this year. So Mark, we could see a rise in initial jobless claims uh, coming in October if air traffic does not pick up soon. According to the Airlines for America nonprofit group, and I got this from their website, they indicate that 750,000 people work in the airline industry that help drive more than 10 million American jobs. So before I, I ask you for comment, you can uh, track passenger loads uh, by 
people going through TSA checkpoints. And uh, we're nowhere near back to pre-COVID levels. At the worst, we were about 200, 300,000 passengers a day. And I saw the statistic yesterday, Mark, we're back up to 800,000. Again, nowhere near pre-COVID levels. I want to see if you have any comments about this. Yeah, well, I know when this was first a part of the CARES Act, there were a lot of people that weren't happy about this because everyone was like, you know, in the mindset, burn it down, burn it down. These airlines and all these executives are getting, you know, all of these shoots and all of these payouts where I don't really necessarily agree with that because, you know, if you dig into it more, you know, they can't implement layoffs until October. So that's one thing. Um, you know, I think that this was designed in the best way possible to be able to help the workers of these airlines because, okay, so say, say people want to burn it all down and you just let these airlines go out of business. You're going to have millions of people out of work. You're going to create several, several issues with travel and the economy. So this is just more, this is more than, you know, people thinking that this is a, lifeboat for executives of these airline companies. This ripples through the whole economy and people have to understand that. This is not just letting one company fail and everything's going to be fine and dandy. You know, if all these airlines fail, then, you know, is that the end of air travel in the U.S.? Or, you know, what, what happens then? Does right? it become nationalized? It's the new U.S. Postal Service, right? Right, right, uh, exactly. So, so I think... I think that, you know, on the offset, people were not happy about this, but I just think it affects a lot more things in our economy and it affects a lot more people than just the executives of this company. Exactly. And the other point I would like to make is you got to think about a lot of these local uh, governments that own these airports. They are profit centers uh, for these local governments that, that take those um, net earnings, right? And then they reallocate it to the rest of the city. So take us here in Dayton. You know, the city of Dayton um, makes a, a chunk of coin off the Dayton International Airport and they reallocate that to, you know, other parts of the budget. And that happens in other states as well. So you got to remember, this just goes beyond, you know, the airlines itself and the economic impact that it has. And so this is something that if we start to see a rise in initial jobless claims in October, um, you know, we might reference this podcast here today on, on uh, August 5th, my friend. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm going to send it back to you. Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is that I wanted to clarify mortgage rates from our conversation last week, because I think I was just going off the top of my head with what the average uh, interest rate was for a 30 year mortgage, but I went and got that data. So um, the national average interest rate for a 30 year mortgage as of July 16th of this year was 2.98% an all-time record low, producing a $421 monthly principal and interest payment per $100,000 borrowed. And this is from BTN Research on July 27th. Got it. So think about that, Matt. I mean, for a lot of people, $421 a month, that's, that's a good chunk of change. That's a good chunk of savings right now. So it's just interesting to look back because, you know, I've talked to people family members, clients, friends, um, and many others that, you know, when they got their first mortgage, mortgages were 14%. So this is just putting into perspective, you know, how this low interest rate environment's not only fueling 
you know, people not being invested in bonds, but also it should be fueling people borrowing more money at lower rates to be able to utilize in their best interest. Yeah. And I think you're going to see a lot of people who used to rent that have, um, you know, fair or good credit, you know, at these types of numbers, they're probably going to save money to buy their own place. Right? Right. Right. And I mean, it almost makes more sense. And everyone's situation is different to finance buying a home or buying a car than rather than coming with cash to the table. Because, you know, the way we have to think about this, right, is you, if you can invest a lump sum of money and return, let's say, 7 or 8% per year, and you can borrow at 2 or 3%, then that makes sense to invest that money and finance that purchase, right? It does. And what I tell people is, you know, as long as, you know, that investment, you know, if it were to go to zero per se, and you still have the cash flow to make that payment, that's something you should definitely consider, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that there's, there's a whole emotional side to when it comes to debt and financing things, and it's tough for people to get over that, that psychological worry. But just from a pure numbers standpoint, you know, if you work with an advisor, they can tell you from the numbers what makes sense financially. But then again, you have to overcome the, the, the emotional side of it as well. Well said. So the next one I thought was really interesting. And this was a tweet by Ryan Dietrich on July 14th. And he tweeted this growing consensus of a democratic sweep in November. Historically, stocks have done quite well under this scenario. There are many worries out there, but this shouldn't be one of them. And this is a graphic that we'll have up on the show notes for everybody, but it shows uh, the performance of the S&P every year that the Democrats won the House, the Senate, and the White House. And the average S&P 500 index return, all the way starting from 1951 to 2010, every time this has happened the average return in the S&P 500 was 13.2%. So the reason I want to highlight this, Matt, is people tend to let their politics get in the way of investing. And I think, in my opinion, that's a recipe for disaster. I think you have to look at things objectively and always have a plan. And again, reminding people that we said earlier, this is a long-term game. This is a long-term investment and you can't let politics short-term get in the way of that. Well put. I mean, um, for uh, newer listeners, you can obtain this information by going to our website, uh, jessupwealthmanagement.com. You will hover over the podcast tab and you're going to see the link for the show notes. What Mark is showing here, and when you go to our site, you'll see this, there's about 18 data points on this sheet showing the years where the Democratic Party controlled uh, Congress as well as the presidency. And of those 18 data points, Mark, uh, three were negative. And so, you know, are we saying that, you know, if there's a sweep by the Democrats that, you know, it's going to be a positive market next year? Of course not. But you got to look at data points in similar time periods. And it definitely is one of those data points that I think is noteworthy. The other thing that I would like to throw out there, Mark, is this. You made a comment on the podcast about three weeks ago that at that time, um, uh, Biden and his campaign threw out there their tax proposal. And specifically, I focused in uh, on the corporate tax rate, and they were proposing 28%. Is that correct, sir? 
Uh, yes, uh, raising so, it back up to 28%, which is still lower than what it was before, I believe, because I think it was 30 or 32%. It was 35. It was 35. It was 35, yeah, before, before Trump reduced it to 20. Okay. So, you know, I think that uh, the biggest concern I would have short term, and I'm throwing this out there with a Democratic sweep, would be the high likelihood that we would see those taxes go up and the market would obviously have to price that in. But um, I think this is a great piece because, you know, you're going to have people on both sides of the aisle where if they're very passionate uh, about their party, that could affect their decision making process when it comes to investments. And so I'm glad that you brought this up. Yeah, yeah. So moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, and this is centered around a values based budget. So this article is from Zach Hubbard of Greenspring Advisors. And it's my opinion, Matt, I think I've talked about this before on here that people should be budgeting based upon what they absolutely love spending money on. And I think, Ooh, it's, I like too, I think it's too often that people get shamed for spending money on things here and there that really aren't necessary, like a latte, for example. But if you really love that latte, latte and that's extremely important to you, then I think you should have that in your budget and you should be able to do that. You shouldn't be getting shamed by Nancy or, or Susie Orman uh, for not you know, spending $6 on a latte every single day. I just don't think that's the proper way to go about it. So I think you know, a values-based budget could make things easier and more fun for people. So so starting off, Zach says, many of us have heard the same old lines about budgeting for 20 years, the 50-20-30 rule, 50% on housing, transportation, and food, 20% savings, 30% discretionary. Cut out the avocado toast. Do you really need that $6 coffee? The problem is that these budgeting tips focus on adjusting your life to your money, when in reality, you should be focusing on adjusting your money to your life. A values-based budgeting process is a process of creating a budget that categorizes spending based on your core values. To create this type of budget, you'll need to do a little prep work, namely listing out all your expenses for the last three months and determining your core values. Once you have your expenses listed on your, and your core values defined, you can start categorizing your expenses. In its simplest form, values-based budgeting categorizes expenses into three broad categories, the basics, value spending slash saving, and expendables. And I really do love having people budget this way, Matt, um, because if you love your $6 latte every morning and that's really important to you, then you should have it. And I don't think you should let people tell you otherwise. Love it. So... Moving on, he kind of breaks down the three main categories, the basics, value, spending, and expendables. So the basics, obviously, are going to be things like housing, food, transportation, utilities, et cetera, Matt. Um, but it's helpful to kind of ask yourself some questions to determine if they really belong. So questions like the following. Would cutting this expense lead to hardship for you or loved ones? Would cutting this expense affect your, you or your loved one's ability to earn income? Would cutting this expense add stress or discomfort to your life? If the answer is yes to any of these, then that expense should be included in the basics. Moving on to value spending. 
You will want to think hard about each expense and whether or not it furthers one of your values. A good way to start is by writing down your core values, ideally five or less across the top of a chart, then placing expenses under the value that you think it would fall under. Consider this example. Let's say that one of your core values is community. You may think that a $6 latte from your local coffee shop falls under this category. However, if you simply walk into the shop, grab your coffee, and drink it on the way to work for a boost of energy, that doesn't necessarily align with a sense of community. But if you go to the shop, know the baristas by name, chat with the locals, and real, really feel a sense of attachment to that coffee shop as your place, then it fits much better. And I thought this was kind of a cool example that Zach used, Matt, because we kind of have this here in Dayton. Yep, we do. We do. Um, we have, at our local Starbucks, we know a majority of the baristas and it, 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 it's fun, you know, going, catching up with them. And, you know, I, I wouldn't go as often, Mark, if, if I didn't know these people. Right, right. So it's just, I think it helps people when they struggle with purchasing, you know, shiny things. So if they want to buy a new car or they want to buy new rims for their new car, it's, it's kind of interesting to sit down and say, hey, you know, is one of your values impressing other people, right? Because that's what a, a new car and new rims are. And it might impress yourself too, but, you know, I'm just talking about the majority of, of purchases of shiny cars and new rims, you know, it's to impress other people, right? Mm -hmm. And if that's one of your core values and that's fine, but if it's not, then maybe you need to rethink that, right? Yep. Absolutely. I think this is a great article. And I like the uh, percentage he threw out there at the beginning, the 50% for, you know, housing, food, and transportation. So moving on to the expendables category, this category houses everything that didn't fit into the first two categories because these expenses are not basics and they do not further any of your values. They are free to be cut. Okay, so obviously you're going to have, have to make some adjustments in, the, in this uh, values-based budgeting, and if they don't fit under the basics or your value spending, then they're okay to be cut. So I just thought that this was an interesting way. I think especially for the younger generations um, can go about budgeting because I know that budgeting is not fun <laughs> and people don't like to do it, but I think this is a way that you can kind of make it more interesting and really see if your spending allows, or excuse me, your spending, you know, lines up with your values and your goals for, for your life. I think it's great, Mark. And you and I've commented, there's a lot of websites out there that can uh, assist you with tracking your budget, that can link your spending accounts, your checking and savings. So there's a lot of ways technology can assist people with this these days. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Anything else that's on your mind, Matt, before we leave it here for the week? No, sir. Okay. Well, we'll probably be back next Wednesday with another episode, episode 58. But until then, we hope everyone has a great weekend and a wonderful rest of the week. And we will be back with the 58th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. 
If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.